This podcast does not provide medical nor legal advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, possums, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my experience from working as a nurse for 45 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrett, an actor in New York City, and here to offer an every-person viewpoint to our podcast. We are both here because we believe that the more you know, the better prepared you are to make difficult decisions. So please relax and get yourself something cool to drink and something hot to eat, or vice versa. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me for our discussion about what options are available in the presence of advanced cancer at diagnosis. In the first half, Charlie has a chat about why humor um, is critical during the end of life and also has our recipe of the week. In the second half, I'm going to talk about what should be considered when you or a loved one has been diagnosed with stage four cancer and the decision about whether or not to do chemotherapy or some other type of care. And in our third half, Charlie Ch- and in our third half, Charlie shares an essay by David Myers about his use of a houseplant to confront mortality. So Charlie, you doing well? Um Yes, it's uh, summertime and the living's easy. Catfish are jumping and the cotton is high. Cotton is high. It's high. Do you ever know that we really don't ever pass up the opportunity to sing a song? Oh, yes, I notice that all the time. (laughs) Yes. Even though we probably should pass up that opportunity. Says you. Yeah, exactly. I know. Me. So what's our recipe of the week? Well, our recipe of the week is a honey tea cake that is moist. Oh, honey. Dense and perfect. Oh, for a funeral lunch. Ooh, honey. (laughs) And speaking of funerals, the healing power of laughter in death and grief. Humor and hospice. Not something you imagine going together like Romeo and Juliet, Body and Clyde, or oil companies and a green environment. Yet, as psychology today observes, laughter is a healing power in death and grief. Hospice can also be a place for humor. A study done at Kent State revealed that humor was present in 85% of 132 observed nurse-based visits. They found that 70% of the humor was initiated by the patient. If humor is a part of living, then why should it not be a part of dying? Laughter is a stress reducer. We feel better in the moment and long-range effects include a stronger immune system, increased endorphin levels, and lower blood pressure. Psychologists consider a sense of humor an important strength for coping with life. Death itself is never funny, and humor can buffer us from the negative effects of stress unless you literally laugh yourself to death, which is a real thing. Humor is also important during the time of grieving. One of the tasks of grieving is to learn to laugh again. 
A study from the University of Berkeley found that widows and widowers who could smile and laugh when remembering a loved one experienced less anxiety and depression at 6, 12, and 24 months. Many successful bereavement groups incorporate laughter where members are encouraged to share humorous experiences associated with their loved one. Laughter is essential for those who work with the dying. Humor is important in the issue of employee attrition due to emotional exhaustion. Humor in a group provides opportunities to bond with colleagues and is a factor in longevity in hospice work. Alan Klein, publisher of The Whole Mirth Catalog, writes that all of us are aware of the inevitability of life's final process, yet most of us have difficulty lightening up about it. We believe that death is serious business, and therefore seldom see any place for humor in it. Humor, however, can provide relief for our anxieties about death, help us cope with the death of others, and ease the stress that often surrounds grief. By joking about our own death, we can make it, or anything that oppresses us for that matter, less frightening. Our culture emphasizes the loss of everything when we die and the difference between life and death. In many other cultures, life and death are not classified as opposing forces, but simply as aspects of existence. Because of this viewpoint, they have been able to view death in a lighter manner. A good example of not viewing death as tragic can be seen in the cremation ceremonies of the Balinese people. Death for the Balinese is not the end, but is seen as a new beginning for the soul. Therefore, when the body dies and releases the spirit, it is time for great celebration. The procession which precedes the actual burning of the body, for example, has been described as a small Rose Bowl party with an Irish wake thrown in for spice. The Irish uphold uproarious wakes to ease their loss. Humor is personal. Keep in mind, death humor is different, and timing is everything. Humor has also been found to alleviate pain. According to the Journal of Aging Research, humor releases endorphins in the brain, which help to control pain. It can also reduce loneliness among older people suffering from chronic pain. For those faced with accepting end-of-life care, the process of dying comes with less stress when it can be approached as something of a laughing matter. Not necessarily funny haha, but a kind of willingness to occasionally make light of the peculiarities and even absurdities that are often part and parcel of end-of-life situations. One patient quoted in the Chicago Tribune put it this way, While death cannot be cured, your frame of mind is something that you can change. Watch comic films and TV shows. Buy a funny calendar. If you get any duff that you need to take your dying seriously, remember, it's your party and you'll die as you want to. We have included in our show notes an article from the Chicago Tribune of funny, ordinary conversations from people dying or those around them. Marianne, you know, your Charlie, thoughts on humor? Of, you, you've had to do. I'm sorry, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the critiques that probably one of the only critiques that we get at for our podcast is that yeah. people think we laugh uh, too much. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and it's not that we don't take it 
seriously at all because it is serious. But I mean, how serious? I mean, would you rather that we like sit and cry? I mean, it's, it's sort of like you, you, you've got to be able to have, I think, a balance, balance between yeah. Yeah. that, the seriousness of it and sometimes the absurdity of it. No, I agree. Um, it's, you know, you, and I think you, hospice you, you nurses born, you are die. known yeah. for the worst, worst sense of humor, you know, like, and not worse in terms of bad, but mm -hmm. kind of dark. There's very little that, you know, we can't find to laugh at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you, that's you, appropriate you, you know, or you, not, you, you know, it's you, just the way we are. Yeah, you you and doctors are on the front line. So, yeah, I mean, everything can't be, you know, morbid and and whatever which which makes it even tougher you know uh, again on nurses and doctors but especially nurses because you're the guys who have to keep up you know keep up appearances and you know be um sympathetic but it can't get personal because well it's your, it's your job so there's also a lot of pressure on nurses and uh you guys really deserve a, a lot more money and just a lot more respect. Thank you. And a lot more respect. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's crazy I'd because you know, you, you know, money. you know, during you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, during COVID, I mean, you know, oh yeah, nurses walk on water. Um, yeah, except and, when COVID was over, then that's they it. got rid of that's why I all said, the extra what, ones they didn't need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And all the bonus pay and all the extra, you know, it's like, oh yeah. Yeah, and that's, we sucked and that's, your souls out. Yeah, that's why now. I said during COVID. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Now right. that COVID's over, oh yeah, you you do you nurses. You see that door over there? Go through it. Yeah, it's bullshit. No. <gasps> you said bullshit. Yes, I'm trying to think here, and yes, I did because bullshit it is. <laughs> so, folks, please go to our webpage for this week's recipe for honey tea cake and additional resources for this program. Go ahead and pick Marianne's brain. Her expertise is just, I can't think of the right adjective, but longtime listeners, you know. Your tax-deductible donations are always welcome so that we can continue to offer you quality programming. Thank you in advance for making your donation at www.everyonedies.org. That's every... The number one dies.org. Marianne? Thanks, Charlie. You know, I once had a patient say to me, is chemotherapy going to help me? And if it's not, why are they offering it? Now, this is a really good question. We assume that if we're diagnosed with cancer, that chemotherapy or surgery or radiation is going to be offered to cure the disease. The things that are considered are the type of cancer, the stage of disease, the treatments that are available, the general health of the person, and the goals of care. So let me give you an example. Um, I worked for many years at a cancer center, and there I met Brent, who was 59 years old and within days of receiving a diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer. Now, for those of you who don't know, there are four stages of cancer. Um, one through four, and they're based on the size of the tumor, 
And then in stage four is when that tumor has gone beyond the original site. So Brett had lost 50 pounds in the three months prior to his coming to see me. And his tests revealed um, what's called non-small cell lung cancer that had metastasized, meaning it had moved from his lungs to his throat, his spine, his liver, and his brain. The oncologist was offering palliative chemotherapy and a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, which a peg tube, to deliver nutrition because he had trouble swallowing because the cancer was in his throat. Now, he was furious with the situation. He was too weak to return to his rural home where he lived alone, but he didn't want to stay in the hospital. He had no family, and his medical team was waiting for him to decide if he wanted to have the treatment that they were offering. So the oncologist put in a palliative care consult, and I went to see him. So for a little bit of background, chemotherapy for people with what we call wildly metastatic disease, like Brett, who's in a lot of different places, has been offered for the last 25 years to palliate symptoms, which is why it's called palliative chemotherapy. And to palliate means to, you know, to, ma to manage, to take care of those symptoms. Palliative chemotherapy is treatment given in circumstances where the impact of the treatment is not enough to result in major survival advantage, but doesn't affect improvement in terms of tumor-related symptoms, and where the palliation or toxicity of the chemo trade-off is there from treatment clearly favors going like in the direction of symptom relief. So the thinking is that by slowing tumor growth, shrinking tumor size, relieving pressure on nerves and organs, and controlling pain, that this intervention, meaning the, palli the palliative chemotherapy, could improve a patient's quality of life. Now, I've heard patients and family members say that um, palliative chemotherapy was giving them hope for a cure even when the oncologist had made sure to communicate that it was given it was not given with a curative intent that it's you know to say to them this is not going to cure this cancer this is going to you know maybe shrink it maybe help with your pain but it is not going to make it go away you know all hope springs eternal charlie so people kind of hear the pieces of what they're told in just the pieces and not the whole thing. Now, it may be true, too, that oncologists offer palliative chemotherapy because they want to do something, but what they know how to do is to order chemotherapy. So as to Brett's question, would chemotherapy help him? The research findings indicate that chemotherapy and end-stage disease, like you know, end-stage cancer, does more harm than good. So why is it still given? One study found that 324 patients who received palliative chemotherapy for solid tumors, now solid tumors are a tumor of any organ where what we call liquid tumors are um, things like leukemia, tumors of the blood. So those who received chemotherapy for solid tumors and later died, 32% 
received a chemotherapy infusion in the last 30 days of life. The study authors suggested that it may be easier and less time-consuming for the oncologist to prescribe chemotherapy than to discuss end-of-life care and attend to the patient's and family's distress. Another study sought to document an association between the use of chemotherapy and quality of life near death in relation to the patient's performance status. And I'll tell you a little bit about performance status in just one minute. Now, this was a multi-institutional study, meaning it was done in a, a wide variety of different kinds of um, cancer centers across the country. And it was a study of 312 people with end-stage cancer. That is metastatic cancer that's not responsive to at least one chemotherapeutic agent. And um, this was a medium, medium time before death was about 3.8 months. So they were, performance status was measured using what's called an ECOG scale, E-C-O-G. And we're going to put that scale in our show notes so you can look at it. And they also looked at the use of chemotherapy. And these patients were followed until death. But the ECOG scale is simply a zero to five scale, with zero being fully active and able to carry out all pre-disease performance without restriction, to five, which is being dead. The findings show that about half the people received chemotherapy with no improved survival. For those with an ECOG score of two or three, which is moderate or poor performance status, Chemotherapy did not improve quality of life near death. For those with an ECOG score of 1, which is good performance status, chemotherapy was significantly associated with worse quality of life near death. These findings challenge the notion that palliative chemotherapy prescribed in end-stage cancer improves quality of life. It appears to do just the opposite. Now, a retrospective review of chemotherapy used in older adults, those are people over age 60, with acute myeloid leukemia, categorized people according to intensive chemotherapy and non-intensive chemotherapy. So what they did is they looked at people over age 60, put them in two groups, was it intensive chemotherapy that they had intense, non-intensive chemotherapy. And this is a retrospective review. So this is looking, you know, at people after they died and then going back in the chart and pulling out this information. 88% of the people died during the study period, but only 16% received palliative care and only 23% received hospice care. In the last 30 days of life, 84% were hospitalized and 61% died in the hospital. Among the patients who died, those who received intensive chemotherapy spent 30% more of their life after diagnosis in the hospital and were less likely to receive hospice services than those receiving non-intensive chemotherapy. So one of the things when you're looking at goals of care is to, is to say, well, in, in a sense, where do I want to die? If you want to die at home, 
then taking palliative chemotherapy is not, according to these studies, the way to do that because you can get very sick from these chemotherapies that are offered that could result in you being in the hospital and, you know, separated from your family, your friends, your pets, your own comfy bed, um, because you're hospitalized. Then if you said, well, there's not going to be a difference in my outcome, I'm going to feel worse I have to go to the chemotherapy center to get the chemotherapy. Is that what I want to be doing in my last 30 days of my life? Now, at the time of my palliative care consult with Brent, his ECOG score was three. And this meant he was capable of limited self-care and was confined to bed or chair for more than half of his waking hours. Based on the findings of recent studies and others dating back 30 years, Brett would likely have a poor response to palliative chemotherapy. There was a good chance, given his prognosis, that he would experience a number of toxic, bad side effects and live only a short time. Despite solid evidence indicating that giving chemotherapy to patients with poor performance status and progressive end-stage cancer has no clinical benefit, the standard of practice is still to offer chemotherapy. And a lot of that's driven, like I said, because the doctor, the oncologist, wants something to do. And also that people, I found, have this idea that, well, if we can put a man on the moon, we can certainly treat cancer. And while we've made some strides in that, not all cancers are curable. We don't have the drugs with which to do that. The American Society of Clinical Oncology, it's called ASCO, has published recommendations stating that further chemotherapy has no clinical value to patients in, in whom it has failed, who have an ECOG score of three or more, and who have been diagnosed with a solid tumor. The ASCO export expert panel notes that in patients for whom chemotherapy offers no evidence of clinical value, it's nonetheless commonly used. The panel stated that many patients are unprepared for high out-of-pocket costs of treatment, especially in light of its benefit in extending life by only days or weeks, if at all. So this brings us back to Brett. Would I tell him that, given his clinical prognosis, palliative chemotherapy would not extend his life, not make him feel better, not improve his health enough so that he could return home and live independently? No. That's not my role as the palliative care consultant. Ideally, prior to an oncologist's offer of palliative chemotherapy, there would be a discussion with Brent and any family members or friends about prognosis, goals of care, fears, and acceptable trade-offs between chemotherapy and other palliative intervention. But it often doesn't happen, as confirmed in the 2015 report, Dying in America, Improving Quality and Honoring Individual Preferences Near the End of Life. As the authors of that report state, 
quote, the overall quality of communication between clinicians and patients with advanced illness is poor, particularly with respect to discussing prognosis, dealing with emotional and spiritual concerns, and finding the right balance between hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Ample evidence documents structural and financial disincentives for having these discussions, end quote. To be sure, such conversations can be difficult for clinicians, their patients, and their families. People are often frightened by a cancer diagnosis and the language used to discuss it. Even by promises to fight the disease and do everything that can be done, clinicians, though, should communicate that just because something, such as chemotherapy, can be done, doesn't mean that it should be. I asked Brett what he hoped for at this point of his life. He said, I like my independence. I like my little house in the country where I can be my own man and live on my own terms. He showed me pictures of his golden retriever and talked about wanting to care for her. When I asked if he thought he had the strength to do do so, he said he didn't. He had long ago lost contact with his family members. As he talked about his options, He said he couldn't see how coming to the infusion center from his rural home made any sense. It isn't the healthcare practitioner's place to tell patients what care decisions to make. Rather, clinicians should provide information in a clear and understandable way so that you, the patient, and the family can make your own decisions. Now, this is especially true for members of the baby boob generation who are now in their 60s and 70s and consuming great amounts of health care. They have never been a generation to do as they are told. Perhaps they'll be the generation to make medical authoritarianism extinct. Our healthcare system consistently offers expensive crisis care as people reach the end of life. Fortunately for Brett, his longtime neighbor offered to help care for him at home so that he could receive hospice services. Brett declined both chemotherapy and the peg tube and returned home to his dog. Findings from the studies that I talked about, among others, show the low use of palliative care and hospice service and the widespread use of chemotherapy, despite potential harm in patients with progressive metastatic disease. In working with other healthcare practitioners and patients and families, I've seen that quality of life at the end of life often begins with clinicians' willingness to deal with patients' distress and facing a life-limiting disease. If palliative care, which focuses on relieving symptoms and providing support to patients and family, were not offered at the time of a cancer diagnosis, then it most certainly should be offered when palliative chemotherapy is being considered. Many healthcare practitioners never initiate these difficult conversations. But by taking the time to discuss the complex emotions patients have surrounding death, loneliness, and loss, nurses can communicate that they're not giving up on patients and that these other kinds of care that we can offer are really more in line with what the patient themselves want. Any questions about that, Charlie? 
Um, you know, Marianne, what to do. You're smarter than the average bear. So for, you know, people, the average, you know, the average person who doesn't know this, that they have choices, um, I mean, how, how do we educate people to that? That they don't have to, that, that there are choices. And because, you know, the doctor, like, like you said, you know, most doctors, you know, want to push for something that's really too much and is going to cost a lot of money. Um, I mean, how do, I mean, you know better than I, I mean, how, how, how do we educate people? How do we let people know that, you know, you, there are questions you can ask. Um, here, these are, these are some of the facts and that, you know, so people, <laughs> I want to keep saying forewarned is forearmed, but it is along those lines that, that, you know, that you have that, that information. I mean, it's already a stressful time, but you need to be informed. You don't want all these things done to you. Um, so how do we do that? Well, that's why we're here, Charlie, is that we have, what are we, in our fourth season of podcasts giving people this information. I think maybe the bigger question is how do we get people to know about our podcast and listen to it so that they can go in with um, sort of their questions planned out. You know, we've got um, a podcast from season one about how to hear bad news and, and how to have people go with you and take notes and think about your options. So in my fantasy world, I would say that, you know, if you're in a situation that you start listening to the podcast and say, okay, this is what I'm going through. What do I need to know about it? You know, and then, and the next change that occurs in your life, say, okay, has she done, have, they, have they done a podcast about that yet? And um, and if we haven't, send us a note and we'll do one. We Our email is my name, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, at everyonedies.org with E-V-E-R-Y, the number one, dies.org. You know, let us know. If there's something that you say, you know, this is what I'm going through. I can't find that on your list. Would you please do one? And we'd be happy to. So we, 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 among lot, you know, lots of other sources have the information there. I think is important. Put down your fear, which is, you know, understandable and educate yourself and, and, you know, knowledge is power. And then you'll, you'll know how to get yourself through it. There we are. Knowledge is power. Yeah. So, um, I'm sure you've come across this too, um, but, you know, especially in the big city, I mean, so many people, more and more are, especially older people, are either isolating or, like Brett, really do not have family members um, they can, you know, rely on or, you know, have lost touch with family and friends. And... um, you know, so uh, 
and they point that out to me, you know, when I talk to people about, you know, making sure they have their healthcare proxy, a, a living will, a regular will, you know, things like that. Um, what I've, you know, taken to, to telling them is to, you know, if they are in a building with, with a, with a, with a doorman, um, are they friendly with their doorman? If there's a, you know, a deli or bodega nearby that they usually go to, uh, would they feel comfortable saying something to that, that deli owner? Like, um, hey, I'm going to die one day. <laughs> um, I, I need a healthcare proxy. This is what a healthcare proxy does. Uh, can you give a brother a hand? And and people look at me like I am out of my mind, and I just leave them with that. But I will follow up and I go listen. What, what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. What do you what do you think? You you know the the guy at the deli or you know whatever. And that has been helpful. And and of course some people I mean have said no no no. There's absolutely no one. I mean just absolutely are not willing to make an effort. Um, and not even consider how many people they actually do come in contact with. I mean, who could be there for them, you know, at the end of their lives. So. And better be thinking about that while you're still oh, absolutely. around to Preparation, go to the deli or wherever, you know. Preparation is so everything. Can't. Yep. Yeah. You don't want to take care of a crisis, you know, deal with a crisis when you're in the middle of it. No, please, please, please plan in advance preparation. Yeah. And that's, you know, the other part of it is that, you know, people don't like that we call ourselves everyone dies, but. But everyone dies. It's, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a truth. And by pretending it's not going to happen and going to make it go away. Yeah. So it will. And we don't know when. And we don't know how. You know, people that I've known, you know, I've worked in oncology for years, always assume it's going to be the cancer that's going to kill them. But, yeah, but not necessarily. You could still get hit by a car. All the other things that could possibly happen yeah. without a cancer diagnosis can still happen to you when you do have a di cancer diagnosis. Mm. So don't assume it's going to be, you know, this one thing. It could be anything. And we just don't know. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So as Marianne uh, mentioned in our third half, I'm going to read an essay that was written by David Myers, who was a family physician and a healthcare policy researcher in the Washington, D.C. area and living with terminal cancer. My wife and I usually don't keep houseplants. Anything in pots gets either overwatered or underwatered. After my diagnosis with glioblastoma, a terminal brain cancer with a prognosis of little more than a year to live, I love the idea of having something new and green and alive around us. When my friend Mitch gave me what he said was a lucky bamboo plant in a deep green pottery bowl with three pencil-sized stalks braided together, we decided to place the plant in the living room window across from the couch where I spent much of each day. 
I smiled when I looked over the rim of the mug of coffee Hannah brought me each morning. I told Hannah I wanted to care for the plant myself. When it didn't immediately turn yellow or brown or lose all of its leaves, I was pleasantly surprised. Tending to the plant gave me a sense of accomplishment at a time when I had sometimes felt useless. Glioblastoma limited my ability to walk, and the treatment left me fatigued, making it hard for me to accomplish everyday tasks. As a physician, I was used to being the one who provided care, not the one who received it. Since my diagnosis in August 2018, far too often it seemed I had to rely on help from other people. The enormous change left me feeling adrift and unsettled. Watering the plant, as small an act as it was, connected me to a core part of my old identity and taught me I could still be a caregiver. Plants and people could still depend on me. Over the next few months, I recovered from surgery and completed radiation and the first round of chemotherapy. Even after I returned to work, I continued to care for the plant. Soon it had nearly doubled in height and its leaves were shiny and lush. Both the tree and I were thriving. Then, mysteriously, it began to show signs of stress. I increased my watering, then decreased it. I nestled coffee grounds into the soil. I fed it commercial plant food. No matter what I did, the leaves kept browning and dropping to the floor. I grew more and more frustrated and uneasy. You know, I can't even care for a simple plant, I yelled. I'm failing. Hannah reminded me that we'd seen houseplants die before. She asked me why I was getting so worked up about this particular one. If my lucky bamboo dies, I blurted out, I might die too. I couldn't shake the feeling that the plant had become a symbol of my own precarious health. I realized I had wrongly connected my careful nurturing of the plant, something over which I had at least some control, with my own survival, something over which I had no control. When my tumor inevitably returned, it would not be because of any failure on my part not because I didn't atomize essential oils in my office, not because I ate sugar occasionally, and certainly not because I failed to keep this plant alive. As my anxiety lessened, I began to pour over online tutorials to help me figure out how to care for my ailing plant. Following the instructions, I transplanted the tree to a larger pot, untangling its roots to give it room to grow. When it was back in the sunny window, we both began to thrive again. Whenever I look at the tree with its braided stalks in its new pot, I make a point to think of Mitch and the other people who have cared for and supported me. If the plant outlives me, I hope it will comfort Hannah and remind her that our large community will continue to nurture her after I am gone. Mm, that's a wonderful essay. Yeah. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete. Called the father of the atomic bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, while watching the first ever atomic bomb explode, thought of Hindu scripture. 
Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.